Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. Hey, folks. Welcome to the Pandora Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kevin, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Melissa Cady. And for today's episode, we want to talk about trauma and healthcare, and not necessarily in the way that you may be thinking. So, Dr. Cady, how are you today? I'm, I'm good. I had, you know... Sp- Speaking of uh, trauma and healthcare, I might as well bring up uh, the example we were discussing earlier is that sometimes, um, you know, when you work in the healthcare system, you can be in certain environments where, you know, there's a lot of stress in the sense of just keeping things moving and also worrying for your patient's safety. And um, unfortunately, sometimes you can be in toxic environments where, you're not supported in your advocacy for patients. And I had the privilege and benefit of being supported, which was such a relief because it does not happen everywhere. And anyone who is in the healthcare field knows what I'm talking about. But when you're trying to do the right thing for patients and you feel like you're getting the beat down and um, just hearing an earful by people that don't understand the stress that you're under and what you're trying to look out for it, you know, when people don't understand that it, it can just make your job a lot worse and you feel pretty helpless and hopeless and can help with the instance of burnouts, one word for it, but um, it's all, there's a lot of different words being thrown out there and moral injury is another one. And, and just this idea of, and I love, we'll have to refer to the podcast that Dr. Kevin did not too long ago talking about this sense of ability to have control over the situations um, and also the sense of responsibility towards patients. And um, it was really a humbling experience to, after so long at times feeling like I'm in environments where um, no one's really, you know, there to to support you and and make you feel like um, there's other people other than you that want to stand up to things that are right. Um, it was just a wonderful experience to have that despite mm-hmm. the stress that I was under, and uh, to give some sense that you're not going to be walked on, uh, walked all over uh, when you're already stressed out. So, you know, I think whenever you have a, a physician or a nurse or anybody trying to take care of patients and they're already stressed and already time crunched, uh, you need to feel like um, you have the voice to be able to, to make a difference and uh, do the right thing over and over. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard to stay in the field. <laughs> and if you're a victim of the system, it's really, um, unfortunately, patients become a victim of that as well. Any thoughts? Oh, many thoughts. Many, many <laughs> thoughts. The first one I just want to clarify. So that I think the top podcast we were talking about was when I was a guest on Doctors Unbound with uh, Dr. Dave Dragines, mm-hmm. right? Okay, okay. So, and we'll try to put like a look in there. Was it? That was actually a great episode for me to do, and I was really privileged to, was to talk to Dr. Dave about that because it was just a lot of fun. So Doctors Unbound, great podcast. It's really geared toward physicians, but um, but it, it was a, it was an interesting experience. Um, yeah, so much kind of unpack there. Um, I'm going to kind of go from the back because because there's a couple words that you said 
and the one of them I um, is the, the of I guess it would, see this may lead into a different discussion than we want to go into, but the idea of victimhood, right? And the then the when it comes to healthcare and specifically like physicians in the healthcare system, there is a lot of stress, trauma, burnout, moral injury, whatever we want to call it. Um, but I, I also want to emphasize is the fact that to be a victim, you actually have to assume that role. And so we have way, way, way more control than people recognize. And I think though, developing that sense of control over what it is that you provide, because nobody else can provide that we, what we do. I mean, we, we can't, and this is not being doctor, you know, cocky about being a doctor or anything. If anybody, you know, I go after the doctors all the time, but it's just mm -hmm. to say we have a skill set that's pretty unique. And so we as physicians and really as healthcare uh, clinicians in general need to recognize that we, we provide an important service. And if the system outside us can continue to winnow down and constrain us and put us in these environments where it becomes very, very difficult to do the right thing, um, that is not a great environment to be in. I can understand when you are and, and when you may have to navigate it. But at some point we need to recognize that we do have the strength and we do have the control and we can choose to do something else. And so I, I just wanna kind of lie that at the end because the one part would be we sit there and we're going, oh, woe is me, the healthcare and we can't do anything. Um, but we, we active choice, like the ability to, to kind of take control of your choices again and recognize that you do have a choice. They may not be easy choices, they may not be not great choices, but you have that ability to choose. Um, and just being aware and able to recognize that is super crucial when it comes to burnout and uh, you know moral injury or whatever. And the, and the ability to distinguish yourself that you are that you aren't a victim, that you are a survivor, or that you have more agency and you can do things to really transform both your life and, and the environment that you're in. So I kind of went a little bit off topic there. Mm -hmm. uh, on, the, on the trauma standpoint though, and I think what's important for our audience, because we have this kind of general audience, I'm assuming who's, you know, whoever's crazy enough to listen to us. Um, <laughs> what you need to recognize, it, well, multiple pieces. One, you need to recognize that when you are under stress, you have a difficult time communicating. Just think about any time in your life when you have had so many overwhelming things going on. Maybe you are, you know, fighting with your spouse or your kids are, are acting up or you're having financial difficulties. And you just think about in those, in those instances, it's very, very difficult to make good decisions. In fact, it's very difficult to make decisions at all. And, um, and so when you're under that stress, your vision times them narrow to the short-term behaviors and you start to see a lot of threats, even when threats that aren't even there. That becomes very difficult to make long-term good decisions. Now, interestingly, and we had talked about this before we got on, is systems, meaning organizations, workplace environments and things, start to react in the same ways that humans do under significant, significant distress. So when you look at a healthcare system of which I have not seen one yet that is not under significant distress, they act in the same way that a person would, meaning the organization doesn't make good choices. They can't think long-term. Individual departments start to silo off and to be very protective of their role and they don't wanna share information with anybody else. Communication starts to break down. People become empowered on what they can't do. I can't do this. I can't do this. So we start hear lots of no's and less about trying to, well, how could I help you? Or how could I make this work? Or how could I facilitate this change? And that becomes important as a consumer because you have to recognize when you are stepping into these environments, you have to be your own advocate. It is not that they are bad people or horrible, awful people in healthcare. Sure they are. They're the minority. But in a system like that, 
if you want to take care of yourself, you have to make sure that you're keeping your head above water and you are not kind of falling into that trauma environment and being able to say, you know what, this is not the greatest interaction. Maybe that doctor was short with me, but um, what, what was the good information that he said? What are the critical questions that I need answered for my care and focus on getting those answered rather than just, you know, getting into arguments or, or long, you know, not being able to have to talk effectively, writing this stuff down. So, um, so it's just, it's important to be aware of that environment so that you can go into it. You're kind of, you know, you're stepping into the lion's den. You're aware that there are lions in there, but you can get through it safely as long as you know that, that um, it, it is not a happy place. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a happy rainbow place, uh, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, you, you know, and to jump back um, regarding those choices, uh, I think it's really important to recognize that there are times when it's usually one of the most difficult decisions. It's sometimes in our lives, whether you're a professional or not, and you recognize that there's something toxic in your life, a relationship, an environment, um, the way you're living your life, whatever it is, sometimes it requires actually changing your life. And it's... I think at least if this is a perfect, you know, podcast with both of us on here that we both made intentional choices um, to avoid the toxicity and to avoid a life that brought us more stress because of how we viewed healthcare and how we want to take care of patients or do good for the world. Um, you know, even for me, just I'll speak for myself, leaving after my pain fellowship chose not to do any pain injections and struggled with the idea of how to create a sustainable business without those injections. And also made the intentional choice. I even wrote down a number of what was the minimum amount of money that I could survive on and live on and I'd be happy with. And I wrote that down and I started working two to three days a week as a physician, lived in a little 600 square foot apartment. I didn't have these high expectations of grandeur and everything. I have never worked full time on any extended basis. Um, and I think intuitively, I just knew that for the sanity and for my own just life, that why do we have to live by these 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 rules of five days a week and, and be forced in this, you know, forced in this hole where you have to get on the hamster wheel, however you want to like create this analogy. But I did not want to be part of that. It actually made me feel stressed before I even did it. <laughs> so, um, you know, for me, I think the choices, having a choice is definitely important. And, and what I brought up with my example I do have a choice whether or not I work in certain environments and um, there's always that chance that I'm going to step into that. And you are right that um, we have to value ourselves in a way that's beyond sometimes what we give ourselves. And I'll speak for myself. Sometimes um, that part of that is, is having boundaries and um, I don't want to stereotype, but as females, sometimes we're really guilty of not setting boundaries. And we are in a world that, you know, predominantly was male, you know, driven uh, before, you know, the last 50 years. <laughs> um, yeah. It's changed or 100 years. It's changed tremendously. And so there is there's definitely um, we have to be make a conscious effort to recognize our value and to set boundaries if that's not something that you've always been the best at. Um, but I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear what you think about that or the choices you made to 
Well, I, I think you did some really smart things that I think, I think a lot of people miss, right? Is you recognized early on that there was a problem. And then instead of sort of spiraling, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You started developing a course of action. And the, 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 the important things about a course of action is you say, what is it that I need? Like, what's that minimum level that I will be comfortable with? And, and certainly when it comes to, I think, healthcare, and particularly with physicians, and in the extended time that we have, that we have been through, you know, university, medical school, residency training, where you're, you're mortgaging over a decade of time and living. It, it, it not only do you come up with the loans, but there's this kind of, you, you people want to go out and just do, you know, buy a house to get the new car and, and somehow start living this doctor's life. And you hamstring yourself mm-hmm. because when it comes to making good choices, you also have to make sure that you can, you can, that you can proceed with. I'm not ever going to say that you can't make your choices, but it sums, it becomes much more difficult when you have $600,000 of debt mm-hmm. and, a, and two mortgages on top of that, plus whatever. And then it, you can still make a choice, but it becomes much more harder on the execution. Yes. And so very early on, uh, you know, the, the fact that you said, well, this is what I need. This is, you know, this is the minimum. This is where my happy place is. Anything above that is great. You know, that, that's a great technique. And I, you don't have to be a physician to do that. Anybody in your life is what is important. You know, what is it, that, what is your minimal standard that is something that you're happy with? You know, you don't need to go out and eat every day. Uh, you don't need to, um, you know, different types of vacations. What's important to you? You don't have to go spend thousands and thousands of dollars staying in the Ritz-Carlton. You know, what are those key things that make a difference for you? Recognizing where they sit and then designing your life around that rather than sort of falling into this trap of more and more and more and more and more. And then, you know, cause that's the, that we call the hedonic treadmill mm-hmm. where you start thinking, well, it's a new car is going to be better. The new house is going to be better. You know, it, it's the middle-aged people or certainly the new wife is going to be better. Mm-hmm. And it isn't, you know, you, 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 you acclimate to it and nothing changes, especially if you haven't made um, some of those, those, those value-based choices of what it is that you want, where is it you're going to deliver value how is it that you're going to make a difference? Um, so I, I applaud you for those that you did that early on. I, I mean, Thanks. I had the mortgage. I had the two mortgages. I have a mortgage now, but but I luckily bought low in Austin and got a, a, a nice size house for like the same price that if you bought a, you know, a tiny, tiny house in Austin, it would still been the same price, you know, now as I, you know, bought a a decent sized house then. So I don't feel so guilty, (laughs) but um, I'll just put it this way. I would never buy my house right now. I mean, (laughs) Austin has like gone through the the roof when it comes to the value of homes now. Um, Yeah. Wait wait for the next real estate crash. Different, different topic, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but I, you know, from a so from a stress standpoint, what are we what are we trying to say here is if you're a practi- if you're a physician, clinician, or whatever, is to recognize that you have more agency than you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know I talk about this on other podcasts and things, but it is so crucial to understand that we can make good choices. You know, may they not may they may not be the most profitable choices, but if they align with your values, they're the right choices for you to make. Uh, so much of healthcare, looking at our, our traumatized healthcare system, you get people in later positions that are also, like I, I am firmly convinced, because I, I should say this, I don't think they'll be watching this, but I am firmly convinced <laughs> that healthcare CEOs are the most overpaid, underperforming uh, chief executives in any sort of business industry. There may be one worse than that, I'm not sure. 
um, because I'm familiar and I've met a lot of different CEOs in different age, in, in different, um, what do you call it? Different industries. And they're like amazing, like amazing dynamic people doing super cool, creative things and caring and mission driven. And then you come back to healthcare and these guys are making, you know, you look at these nonprofit healthcare systems with one, two, three, four, five million plus salaries going to their CEOs, uh, stock options for the people who are in, in the health insurance industry. And what do they have? They have the worst product on the market that doesn't, it doesn't serve I, I, who it is. Who's their customer? Who is it that they're supposed to be providing value to? It's not the patient. Uh, if it was the patient, we would not be paying more for our healthcare system than anywhere else in the world with having pretty atrocious outcomes. Some of the worst in the world when it comes to outcomes. Um, so anyway, I, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love to see a CEO give up a bigger chunk of their salary to go back to those that are not getting their needs met. In, in healthcare. Yeah, here's, here's a point on this, right? So again, healthcare under trauma, nobody's aligning as we're moving through this period of transition where we're trying to uh, uh, do value-based care, which I'm actually a, I'm a proponent of. I actually believe in that. You should be, be being paid on value and we should be doing yeah. things or not doing things based on long-term evidence-based value, not quick profitability or our views that the AMA RUT committee sets up. Um, <laughs> And yet, like I can, I can tell you locally, and you can, may probably have an example. Actually, I know a couple different examples of this. They'll, oh, the hospital or the health system isn't making enough money. And then they start hiring freezes, which is dumb when it comes to everybody who's providing care. So they're not getting mm -hmm. more people to provide care. Well, that's kind of like your, that's your income dangerous. generator. Yeah. And it's dangerous and you're stressing people out. And then you're going to lose people. Now you're shrinking mm -hmm. your workforce. Mm -hmm. um, they stop uh, uh, salaries or bonus structures on again. So now you have people who are already stressed out and then you put an additional financial stressor on them. But I have yet, yet to see someone in the C-suite voluntarily cut their salary mm -hmm. in the same way. I've never seen that. On the other, different industry, new startup, well, almost different, different, a different country, I would say. Um, healthcare CEO in <laughs> different country doing really amazing dynamic things, trying to change a model of care to create a, a, a value-based, we're going to do the right thing, evidence-based driven. And when they struggle, voluntary, not only did they cap their salary to begin with, halved their salary when they were going through financial difficulties. That is a leader. Mm -hmm. That is someone who's trying to make a difference. And, and you, don't, you don't see that in American healthcare. You just, you, I just don't see these you know from a values driven standpoint from from the c-suite the, the big decision makers for the system standpoint and if they're not going to make it if you're below them and you're the physician then you need to be actually willing to make those value-based decisions um because then they can't do what you do you know they don't they don't have our skill sets and there's you know outside the site sort of this episode there's a lot of potential we have in healthcare that we can have innovation and change uh, that we can actually start working and caring for patients and providing health care rather than sick care. But I don't think we're going to see it in, yeah. in our traditional healthcare system. Yeah, I think to kind of tie into a few things, I think the system itself is is squeezing the, the soul and the spirit of humanity and how we're trying to deliver compassionate care to patients. And when you start doing that, it has this... Um, it it takes it takes a lot of the joy out of it for both sides, and um, even if the C suite is still making the same amount of money, it's 
it's uh, especially when they're not giving back when they're financially struggling apparently um, on the other side of things um, and when you don't really take care of those who are, are working through blood sweat and tears literally um, you know you're gonna put a constraint on their capacity to um, be able to give back to their own family when they get home to take care of themselves so they can give more to the patients um, you start squeezing out the creativity within healthcare, and um, it ends up being the same monotonous, just toxic environment that so many of us, many people are struggling with that want to just jump out. And uh, that's a dangerous place for us to be in, in this country, but it also is a huge opportunity for us to make radical change, you know, I'm a little bit pessimistic because I think there's too many wheels turning um, that are financially benefiting from this, uh, aka the middlemen. I don't think you're real, you're pessimistic. I think you're realistic. Yeah, that too. Pragmatic. <laughs> Pragmatic. <laughs> but there is there is the capacity and the possibility and the potential, but it's going to take a huge falling on our face. Yeah, I, I say it's gonna. There's gonna be lots of crashing and burning, and, and, and when we start hearing lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth, maybe we'll start getting somewhere. Because you're exactly right. There's there's so much blood sucking going on yeah. that people, not only just in the hospital and with groups and low value care, um, but all these other little side industries that are kind of you know PBMs when it comes to pharmaceutical management, just sucking just that provide absolutely no value to the system. And some, the only thing that they do is, is basically how can I benefit me as this, this little entity here? Yeah. Uh, it's I disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't like to talk politics or anything like that, but medicine and politics have something in common and <laughs> that there's a lot of money involved and there are some people that are not, um, I don't know the right adjective to at this moment, but um they're just some not good players there's that many are not, not. Yeah, many not good players. Many self. Yeah. I mean, there's so much selfishness that's rampant in it. When you have, um, you know, the academy of whatever specialty, and I'm not going to pick on them spe specifically. Yeah. That are presenting at a conference and saying, you know what, we just created this the subdivision that's going to do research, and the reason we're doing this research is because we need to be able to show to the insurance companies. Uh, that we've done research saying that what uh, that we do works so that they'll pay us right there you have set the foundation for something that's not only illegitimate but harmful because now you're not designing studies to see whether or not treatment effects are true or whether your therapy actually is beneficial to your patient but you're setting up your your intervention in such a way that the only results you're going to publish are ones that are beneficial to you the mm -hmm. deliverer of care and yeah. that harms patients. And that happens all the time. I mean, that's another one. It, it, it is absolutely shocking uh, how much research is being produced. And the point of that research isn't actually to, to see whether we're helping patients, mm -hmm. but to justify some stupid intervention that's $20,000 and it's got 50 million in venture-backed funds behind it. I mean... <laughs> I, I call would, those I call uh, those pocket advocates. Yeah, pocket advocates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah pocket advocates. Not, not patient advocates. Not yeah. patient advocates. Yeah. No, it's it's a um, it's a disservice to our country and of you know of all places, like you said. I mean, there should 
there should be no reason for this kind of stuff happening. Um, but there's every reason when it comes to the dollar that people are not doing it. Um, so I, I think it's, it, like you said, it's going to take a huge, um, it's going to need to be a massive overhaul of some sort, but it's well, going to get bad I, before it gets better. It, it is going to get worse. And, and, uh, and the other part, because again, I don't ever want people to come from this podcast going, oh, everything's doom and gloom. There's nothing yeah. you can do. The great thing about it is if you actually understand your health, just a little bit of learning there, there is so much that you can do. This, this idea, we've had 20, 30 years now where people have been taught that their bodies are frail, that, that everything that you have is a disease. Every sort of symptom that you possibly can have is a disease. Anytime your tum- stomach starts twirling around, it must be something bad. And lo and behold, if we tell you it's bad and you focus your attention on it's bad and you have all this negative connotations, fine, it gets pretty bad over time. Um, but that's not true. Your body is remarkably resilient. You are stronger than you think you are. The point of the healthcare system is not to find what is wrong with you, but is to uh, eliminate or at least to diagnose what isn't, uh, what am I trying to say here, is to eliminate the possibilities that is clinically, that the clinical suspicion. So you go in, you're not asking, you're you're not, they're not to tell you what's wrong with you per se. What they are to do is tell you what it isn't wrong with you, meaning you don't have cancer, you don't have a horrible infection, you don't have some horrible autoimmune process. In the absence of those really big bad things, your, your body is amazing. Mm-hmm. And if we step back and we just feed it and we move it and we sleep it and we keep it away from those toxins, it, it, it can do so much more than we give it credit for. And, and really the, the modern healthcare system is not designed to, that, to do that. So yeah. little education, you dip your toe into, into the raging river of healthcare, you say, I'm not feeling good. I need reinsurance from my primary care doc to make sure I don't have horrible, awful things. And that's a good thing. If they tell you and say, hey, I know you're hurting. I know you feel horrible. Um, but I want to just reassure you that you don't have these. These are, the, these are the things I wanted to make sure you don't have. And you don't have them. You're going to be okay. It just takes some, some time. And, and as long as you move and eat and do all these nice things. You know, we just have to... Once you do that, and once you can, you can kind of recognize how remarkable our bodies is, healthcare becomes easy. Yeah. And so you have a choice of stepping out. Now, the, the kind of circling back here, the, the danger of healthcare in these toxic environments that we're creating, though, is it's not like a restaurant where you have a bad owner who's yelling at the cooks and the wait staff, where as you traumatize your staff and you have a traumatized restaurant environment, the food quality goes down. And people then stop going to that because they have a choice. Yes. In healthcare, we don't have that choice because at some point, in some point in time, and, and I mean, you're going to have to step in. You, it is a, you don't have a choice in whether, well, I guess you could, but, there, but if you have something in your, in your free you really need it. heart attack, <laughs> yeah, if you have yeah. crushing chest pain, you're going to enter that healthcare system. And, it, and so ultimately, these, these environments that we've, we've created, we have a a captured audience, a captured consumer that we're doing this complete disservice to because we're not fixing our own crap and we're not fixing it because we're making money off of it or someone's making money off of it. And I just can't think of anything more abhorrent than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have to, you know, I know, you know, Dr. Kevin and I both know that there's a lot of well-intentioned practitioners or clinicians out there that are, are trying to do really good work in a very constrained system that can be toxic. And unfortunately, sometimes um, even that constriction um, that's put on those clinicians in those environments, they sometimes 
can focus, despite their inte good intentions, may focus on telling you what you can't do and you have this. And we know that that instills a lot of fear and a lack of belief in the system and the body to change. Now, there are some, you know, it, it's hard to give people perspective without a full medical background to like delineate which things are really important and which aren't, but that's the whole point. Knowledge doesn't mean anything if you don't have perspective. Um, so that's why Google doesn't work well if you don't have good perspective. Um, I've seen that happen on a few occasions to patients that really don't fully get the whole picture of the body. But the point is, is that if you can rule out the important things, um, you know, sometimes unwittingly uh, a clinician or a physician can tell you, well, you shouldn't squat. Like I've heard these things like you, you shouldn't squat. You got some degeneration in your knees. And I'm like, so that means I can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> like they don't even think about what they're saying. Yeah, it's yeah. like, okay, there, there's, there's different gradations of effort and maybe we need to modify. So just because it hurts when you do something, you could find other ways of moving. Not necessarily you have to avoid it. Sometimes you do need to gently work through it and let your body know you're not harming yourself, but there are ways to make your body feel less concerned. And at some point, if it's a new injury, if it's an injury, it'll heal. You know, I'm dealing with a family member right now trying to <laughs> make them believe in their bodies. I mean, that's amazing. I have to like say that, but they're so impatient. And the funny thing is, it's not funny. The more you show concern and the more you keep going back, even though they gave you, you know, reassurance, it's nothing major they can't help themselves, but do something more to you or give you something else. And there's a, there's this delicate balance of like, okay, we can reassess it, but you know, it depends on how much fear and concern you have. People will do more to you, the more you show up. So I'm not saying don't go to your clinician, <laughs> but there is this, this balance of, okay, we know there's nothing major going on. You're not spiking 104 degree fever and this is, it's healing. It looks red, but it doesn't mean, you know, it's, you know, you're going to get septic and die. Um, so it's just all those nuances. I, I think just reminding people that the body, like you said, is amazing, but sometimes we can put limitations on patients out of fear or lack of understanding, think we're doing well by the patient, but you never know how that person's really interpreting it and how they'll live the rest of their life based on what you say. Or mistaking sympathy with compassion. Mm. Yeah. Oh, explain that. So, and I, 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 I know I did this. So I'm just gonna. I know I did this. But I've seen some really horrendous examples of it. Also, is when you come in and and you know someone's hurting, and rather than providing compassionate care, we provide sympathetic care. And what I mean is, is you see people come in and it's like, oh my God, you know, I, I can't believe how bad you're doing, and. I'm just so amazed, you know, that you're still working because your back it looks so horrible on x-rays. It's just amazing that you're even moving because I know people that would be writhing on the ground if they had that. And, and, and that implants this, it's like, oh my God, I must be really bad. The doctor's like this. Or even worse, this pisses me off. Where you have the surgeons that know it's not a good case, but rather than saying, you know what, this is not the right case and this is not the right therapy for you. They say, you know, you are so messed up. I don't know where to operate. So I don't recommend an operation at all. <laughs> and you're like, well, what the hell are you trying? And, and specifically the person I'm thinking of, it was told this, 
it was, you know, they're even in fact trying to talk to a spine surgeon, which is this whole other beast by itself. But the spine surgeon, I mean, at least they didn't operate on him. Instead, they said, your, sp- your back is so bad looking. I, there's nowhere I could operate on it. And it's like, well, what have you now done to, who walked into your office without any sort of assistive devices? What have you implanted in this person thinking that their, their spine is, is this disintegrating mess, which it isn't. I mean, again, the back is one of the strongest structures of the body. So these, in, in other ones, um, you know, uh, we use this nocebo, the opposite of placebo, the harmful language that we use where you tell them people like, how are you doing? And they're like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I just, you know, I'm, they're checking in with their patient. Their patient had something they came in and then the physician reaches out, good doctor practice, following up. Maybe you're going to call them. Maybe you're going to see how they're doing. So you call them up or you message them. How are you doing? And the patient says, you know, I'm doing really well. Thank you for seeing me. Da, 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 da. I'm taking the medication. And then they go, well, that's great. You know, I just, I hope the medication doesn't stop working and, and you get worse. <laughs> and there's an example I've heard of that. And it's just like, what, what the hell are you thinking you're doing? Yeah. With that kind of languaging. And, mm-hmm. and with someone at risk who's already kind of unsure maybe about their bodies. And this is the one thing I think we forget to appreciate is after all of our medical education, we at least have an understanding of what this beautiful machine does. A lot of people don't do that. And we certainly aren't educating people well. I don't know what they're teaching people in health class. I don't think they teach normal physiology anymore. But this can be a, a, this mystery machine where little buzzings and sensations and this becomes, oh, what did the commercial tell me? What did the commercial tell me? And so we have people who are unsure and uncertain. And then we're throwing that kind of negative language on it, of, yeah. which is nonsense language also. Um, man, just the, the language that we use that can be so potentially harmful. But I also, again, to return this back to the topic of trauma, it becomes easier to do that when you're in an environment under distress, where you're now even the practitioner is narrowed down. So all they're mm-hmm. seeing is danger and threat, potential mm-hmm. danger, potential danger, all that rather than or what getting is, sued or getting sued or getting yeah. sued. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think that's a whole different topic. That's yeah, another topic. <laughs> it's a whole other topic on the, on the lawsuit thing. Yeah. But, well, anyway. I yeah, I think uh, you know, and I'm sure we've gone on a little longer than usual. But I, one last thing I'll say is that even a physician I talk to, it's amazing. It even takes sometimes physicians who've been trained to, and I'll 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 say that. Um, I don't like to say the the. Bought the human body is a machine because I don't like people to like correlate it to a car because mm-hmm, we're so adaptable and you and I both know that. Yeah. But I just ran into a physician who literally said, "Hey, by the way, because he knows I do pain stuff and education and empowering people," and and he said, "Oh, I hurt myself on my my knee and then I had hurt my abdomen and I did this and that and and people wanted to operate on me and you won't believe it, it like got better when I did this and that and 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 I'm hearing a physician say this. Yeah. So it's like people, into, they just somehow, the moment you feel the pain, the moment you feel like it can't change, you go into this like, it's never going to change and I can't do this. And if you just give yourself a little bit of space to explore it and, and after you find out there's nothing like emergent and you give it time and you start believing in your body again, your world opens right back up. Yep. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome. And once you experience it, you start believing it again. Easier to believe again. It it is easier to believe it. And again, so I can bring up another important point though, because I'm thinking about that is you have the, there's like 
there's almost like there's two different physicians. There are the physicians that are like, this is, you know, recognize this danger to the system. And then there's physicians, like you said, that fall right into it. Like I can think of two people specifically that are physicians and one of them's getting whittled on all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, what is wrong with you? Oh, my yeah. hip hurts. I'm going to get a hit our, our hip arthroscopy. I'm going to get one on the other side. I'm going to get my shoulder looked at. I mean, all these vague musculoskeletal stuff. And they're getting surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it, I, it, well, how? <laughs> I mean, is, is what, what is it going to take to wake up? To wake up because you have such a, this, they, there are physicians that have this, this idea that this so strict biomechanical viewpoint. like Dogmatic, maybe? Well, no. I think it's, it's dogmatic, but it's biomechanical. That yeah. somehow have drank in their own Kool-Aid that, that, that we have way more, like, that we can do more to the body than we actually can do. Yeah. And somehow these, these, you know, poking a little thing and looking and shaving off pieces of, of bone is going to do better than what your body can naturally do. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it, it is, it is quite shocking. I don't, I don't think there are not as many of them, but there are quite a few doctors oh, yeah. that have drank the Kool-Aid. No, I, I, I had taken care of one in particular. Um, can't say any details, but I know at least had 14, maybe 15 to 20 different procedures, pain procedures. Mm-hmm. And it was like so hard for me to bite my tongue because of my situation at that time. And yeah, I just like, was, well, we, we talked about John Bonica, didn't we? Uh, uh, we we brought him up. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Father of pain medicine, twenty-two right. orthopedic surgeries, right. and uncountable right. interventional procedures performed, and still never got better. Right. And you're like, right. okay, well, <laughs> well, if the father of pain medicine was so ingrained in his biomechanical viewpoint, but you know, started us he, on this catastrophic. We had to stay in. He had to stay in pain to stay. <laughs> I don't know. To still be a to still be his own patient. That's horrible. I shouldn't say that. Um, he, he was he's probably um, you know I didn't know him personally, but from an anatomical standpoint, probably really good at labeling all the stuff. And you know, well, um, and the and the one thing I I pick on him a lot because I I do think he he's responsible for a lot of harm in this world. But it's like that you know that saying of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Well, good intentions was he thought that pain was something that we needed to be more more cognizant of and we did and we do need to be more and we still do and 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 it's important i mean real uh, obviously i'm biased and you're biased but understanding pain provides a foundation for good health that pain skills are life skills and you will no matter who you are you're going to face pain in your life so why don't we have a little bit of knowledge around it so that you have the skills and you're prepared to face it um and so awareness of that is great but he just flipped on this this path of you know, pain, pus, oozy, whatever, that every pain must be oozy. He didn't, obviously, he, I mean, he didn't even understand gate control when it came out. Like, he bastardized the, that first theory and quickly went to this idea of the pain receptors, pain pathways, all the stuff that Nelzak and Wall were saying we don't have, even as far back as 1965. And I, I think it just came to his belief that he, because he was a pro wrestler, right? And so he had had all this physical trauma and he wanted to equate this idea that physical trauma equaled all this other pain for the rest of his life. Well, you can't replace your body. And again, your body can, is, is a remarkable healer. Yeah. Um, and he didn't recognize all those other elements. Cause I'd be very curious to hear the rest of the story. story. That was, mm-hmm. What else was occurring in his mouth? What else happened in his childhood? Where was he raised? You know, the fact that he must not have been from a wealthy family because he had to work his way through medical school as a pro wrestler. And what mm-hmm. did, you know, what kind of impact did his home environment have at that time? Right. 
you know, early life stresses and things. So anyway, that's all. Yeah. And, and how he lived day to day. So yeah, how he know. lived day to day. Well, uh, you know, considering we've, we've talked about, you know, trauma and this um, idea of constriction on the system and sometimes it impacts patients. Well, it definitely has an impact on patients and we want to, to really empower patients uh, and clinicians to make wise choices for their own health and wellness, especially when it, when it comes to pain and that, um, you know, you have to recognize the environment you're in and see it for what it is. And um, even though this may seem like a, um, a, a tough place we are in medicine right now, there, there is still a lot of control that patients have um, for their quality of life. And they have to recognize that sometimes the system can help them and sometimes the system can harm them. And uh, recognizing that can take some time. And, and sometimes, you know, it takes maybe getting a few opinions. The question is what kind of opinions you're getting. That's, that's a tough that's one. That's the other hard part. Yeah. So trying to guide people in the right direction is, is tough. But I just want, and I think you too, want people to be not um, anti-physician or anti-medicine, but just to be wary of that there, medicine is not there to live your life and you have a responsibility and the ability to live your life in a, in a healthy way. And, and all you can do is try to find those clinicians that are deeply caring despite the system and despite how it's constricting them, um, maybe not in the best of ways. So for, from the Pain Dora podcast, Dr. Kevin and myself, Dr. Katie, look forward to talking to you again. And until then, Dr. Kevin, stay well, folks. Thank you for joining us today on the Pain Dora podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at Pandora.com.